Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners to prepare their business for exit so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights Podcast, brought to you by Succession Plus and Capitalize. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsword, and today I'm talking to Oliver Wilson from Shawbrook Bank. Now, today when I was talking to Oliver, I had a number of questions to, that were brought to me by a number of customers, clients, people I know out there, all asking about EOTs and exiting to EOTs. Now, Shawbrook have developed an expertise, some, some specialization in funding EOT exits. So I wanted to uh, pick Oliver's brains and uh, see what's good, what's bad, what's viable, what some of the options are, and what makes it attractive to owners, and what makes it attractive to banks uh, and, and other funding agencies to want to fund this type of deal. Unfortunately, we had a little bit glitch right at the beginning of the podcast, but there was there's no major issues. It was we just lost the first minute, really just this intro section. Well, I was asking Oliver, with the growing of EOTs, what is it about the, the increasing popularity of them? What why are they an option? What what makes them attractive to owners, but especially you know the, the funding and yeah, how the owners can de-risk um, part of the exit by getting funding so they can take some cash with them when they leave right at the beginning. And that really energizes them and the employees moving into the EOT. Oliver suggests that funding becomes attractive when a business has got an EBITDA of, of at least a million pounds. So we're, we're talking Shawbrook, uh, are based in the UK. So it's a, it's a UK option at the moment, a specific and with EOTs are really uh, taking off in the UK at the moment, and they're, they're exponentially growing year on year. We were asking about what are some of the risks and what are the, some of the considerations um, of the situations that would make it viable for funding. And we pick up the conversation here halfway through this question. The vendor is taking off the table because I think the important thing for, uh, for, for us as a lender is that there is an alignment of interest between the board of directors and the management team who are operating the company on a day-to-day -day basis, the outgoing vendor and, and, and us as Shawbrook as the lender. So it's important that we all understand each other's kind of driving forces and, um, and motivations in the transaction. So you know, in a scenario where somebody is exiting 100% to, to an EO, um, that then has another dynamic to it as to whether they're getting all of their money off the table on day one, which is typically not the case. Uh, or whether there's a, a significant chunk of money you know, being being deferred and being paid to them over, over a period of time. And the dynamics for how that, that operates you know, form, inform the lending assessment. Um, because typically with an outgoing vendor, it, it, it's beneficial to have them incentivized uh, and invested in the future success of the company, having been you know, a vendor group who, who've operated that company successfully. If they're only selling 51% of the company, then of course that automatically creates that alignment of interest because the vendor still owns 49% probably uh, of the company going forward. So a lot of it's about alignment of interest between the different parties. I think certainly it's, it's harder as a lending proposition. It becomes a little bit more like a management buy-in uh, type scenario where a vendor exits 100% on day one with all of their money and, and the management team is perhaps stepping up into to leading the business who aren't equity incentivized haven't perhaps had that level of responsibility before and you haven't got a vendor who's incentivized either and that, that's a less uh, less desirable scenario so we've, we've got the management team who uh yeah and, and you know continuity of the management team is desirable <clears throat> so one thing we haven't discussed is i guess size of the business 
So is there a, a, a business size that's moving to EOT that becomes viable for funding or, or are there businesses that are too small to be viable for funding? I imagine there's a cost um, you know, the, to, to get the funding. So the business needs to be making a certain uh, amount of profit. And, and then also, I guess, the percentage of, of funding that you guys, you know, you have an appetite for. If, if 51% of the business is being sold to the EOT, are you looking to fund the whole 51% or is it 50% of the 51%? So many questions. Yeah, no, indeed. And I think a fairly typical scenario would, uh, and this would be the same across all, all lenders, whether it was Shawbrook or, or a different lender. So every, every lender operates their own kind of size point, risk point sort of structure. I guess for us to do EOTs, we're typically looking at businesses with an EBITDA, a sustainable EBITDA of, of, of above a million. Um, you know, I guess most of the, the deals that we operate are probably for businesses of EBITDA one to six, one to seven, that sort of space. Um, and that's more about kind of where Shawbrook sit in the market than anything specifically related to EOT. But there is an expectation that if you're going to put debt into a business, it has to be of scale, defensible enough, resilient enough to be able to reasonably be expected to repay that debt. And I yeah. guess size is a proxy for that. Um, so I guess typically a million EBITDA on a sustainable basis and above would be a good sort of start. Um, in terms of in terms of the quantum, I guess that that depends. We have a sliding scale of, of how much debt we're willing to put into a business based on the, the kind of features and, uh, and characteristics of that business. And that could range from um, maybe putting in one and a half or, or two or two turns of EBITDA uh, all, all the way up to three or, or just over three turns if if that's if that's supportable within the cash flows of the business. The lion's share of the deals that we do will fall in the two to three turns of EBITDA multiple that, that we would put in as a debt structure. Um, and and typically, uh, a fairly typical structure would be that the vendor would take 50% of whatever the EV for their for their shares that they were selling for out as cash on day one, and 50% would be on a deferred basis. And we may fund, we may fund up to the full full amount that's being taken off the table on day one. Okay, so a bit of jargon used there, and and some of yes. our 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 listeners, you know, may not have uh, sold a business yet, and and I know that some of them are in the early stages of of um, you know their their exit planning journey. So I might just explore and dig deeper into some of the jargon there. Um, fifty percent. So, if if the business has got um, about a million pounds in in EBITDA, you know they're a significant size. They're quite profitable. You know they've got on a, a number of thirty plus employees in the business in in all likelihood. So they've got a robust or, or an existing management team in place. Um, you know of more than you know three or four people in the management team. The the, the people in you know with the in the driving seat of the business. They're likely to stay on. Um, is, is part of it. We talked about EV, which is enterprise value uh, of the business, which is just one of the ways of, of determining the, the valuation of a business. And I think you said, um, and, and I'll just try and translate and please pick up if, if, if I got this wrong, but the, if you're going to fund, you may end up funding about half of the, the, the valuation and the owner may expect to walk away with about half the money up front and then expect to get the rest of the money through the um, the vendor financing or, or the financing using future profits of the business to fund the acquisition by the trust. Is, 
Has that? Yeah, that's that's a fairly a fairly typical scenario. It might it might be easier to do it in numbers. So you might say if if the, yeah. if the enterprise value of the business was was five million, let's assume it's a hundred percent sale. So yeah. if the enterprise value was five million, you had an EBITDA of one million. You know, it would be a very uh, a very typical scenario where you know the bank would lend two and a half times that one million of EBITDA to give you two and a half million of lending, and that would be used to provide. 50% of that 5 million valuation to the vendor as cash on day one. And the remaining two and a half million that was due to the vendor would be would be payable by the business future cash flows on a deferred basis, subject to some controls that the lender like Shawbrook you know, would want to make sure that um, those interests are aligned between between us and the vendors. So that would be a fairly typical sort of structure and scenario to enable to enable this that sort of transaction to happen. So the future profits of the business are used to pay back the, the, the loan by the trust um, yeah. and also pay back the, the, the founders or, or the exiting um, shareholders of the business. And, Correct. Yeah, and, and that's and, – and in your experience, uh, Oliver, what's the average uh, repayment time frame? Uh, so I guess typically for these types of transactions, and this will depend again on the risk structure, but we would typically put in a five-year loan um, – and that might might be that would range from being a fully amortising loan. By that I mean it's fully repaid in equal instalments over the life of that five years. But sometimes for, for businesses where it's warranted, we might allow a proportion of that two and a half million in that example to be a non-amortising, i.e., to be interest only. We call it a bullet loan, so it just becomes payable in a lump on on expiry of the five years, and then some of it amortising. So again, a typical scenario might be of the two and a half million pound loan. We might say. 1.75 million of that is amortising, and 750,000 of it can be interest only and payable in a lump at the end of the five-year term. Okay, and and I imagine you. So so you just started to explain you know, that every business is different, and and there are going to be options depending on the cash flow, and, and I guess the industry that the business operates in, and, and the owners, and you know, the real details uh, get down to that. <clears throat> so let's say a business is, is is looking to go down this route. How, in terms of valuation, how do you determine a value of the business? Is, do, you, do you use some sort of third party? You got in-house. Typically, uh, businesses, by the time they approach a lender like Shawbrook for debt, um, you know, it can be at any stage in the process. But typically, they will already have an idea of what the valuation is, and that will usually because they've been uh, advised by by somebody, uh, perhaps somebody like Succession Plus. Um, who gives them a, a valuation of their business that they can use to, to construct the transaction. As part of the, uh, the EOT, it's a requirement to have a formal valuation of the business um, to, to avoid vendors uh, either under or over inflating intentionally or otherwise the valuation. So it's a requirement that a, that a formal valuation is, is done and signed off. Um, and that would usually be what, 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 we, what we would look at. And then we would sense check that valuation based on our experience of other businesses in the market of similar sector, of similar size, with similar dynamics to, to get a sense check of whether we think that, that feels like a, a reasonable and sensible valuation for that business. Yeah, so we don't want people overvaluing their business. It's got to be, still, even though they're selling it to employees and it's you know, always a case of buyer beware, it needs to be a fair valuation for the business. Correct. Okay. And. Once they've decided to go down this route, they've, they've got a valuation for the business. Um, hopefully, there's been some sort of um, assessment and engagement with the workforce that this is a, a, an option they want to go down. I know that sometimes that doesn't always happen. Uh, but 
how long does it take? Yeah, you know, they start engaging with you guys and go, look, can we get funding? How long does that, that part of the process take? I think, again, it, it varies from case to case, but um, I would say, you know, the, the banker really the, um, or certainly at Shawbrook anyway, we're rarely the people who slow down a process. So, um, you know, there's lots of moving parts in, in these sorts of things. But I would say, you know, eight to 12 weeks is, is a fairly typical uh, typical time frame if everybody's motivated and wants to get it done. But many of them take longer because they engage, you know, with us early. And I would encourage um, businesses considering this as, a, as an option, uh, particularly where they're wanting to or considering putting debt into the business to help the transaction to engage with with your lender early so that they can go on the journey with you and help advise and help you shape how you set up the transaction and the information and uh, and the decisions you're making along the way to, to make it the, the smoothest path and that means it might you know the engagement might be a little longer uh, but it'll be time well spent in the end yeah it's well it's 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 like many things isn't it do the planning up front and and um and be prepared and you you yeah, the, the execution will be a bit smoother. Absolutely right, yeah, for sure. So it may be a bit of a trick question, this, but, um, you know, some of the business owners have come to me and sort of said, yeah, how does it all work? You know, who's, who's got the liability for the mortgage uh, or, the, or the loan, rather? You know, who's got the liability? Is it, is it the trust? Is it the employees? Uh, the employees don't want to take that risk. Uh, is it the business? You know, who, who's got the liability? And, you know, do I get my money first or does the bank get their money first? Okay, well, I'll, I'll answer that in the reverse, in that, in that the bank always gets the money first. So um, that, that's a given, really. So a security structure, the bank will take security, and that will typically be a, a debenture over the company. Um, but that will include uh, incorporating both the trust and the operating company, because ultimately it's the operating company who are uh, generating the profits that are servicing the debt. And that's where the enterprise value sits is in is in that kind of operating company so typically the security structure will encompass both uh, the trust company and the operating company uh, to make sure that that's that's all kind of aligned and i guess one of the principles of of, of lending in these scenarios is that the loans that are being put into the business are what we call senior loans which means they rank first they have priority over over everything else so that includes priority over um everyone really apart from hmrc so um and and so that includes vendors so you know the bank Shawbrook we will always want some some level of control and, and oversight about how much of the vendors deferred consideration is being paid out of the cash flows of the business whilst the debt with the bank is outstanding so I guess the worst possible scenario is where you know repayments to to pay an outgoing vendor cause the business to default on its debt because it hasn't got the money to do that you know we're very keen to protect against that so um, you repay, the, repay the bank debt first and then other stuff become comes after that okay well no surprises there really are there indeed no. so the, the business owner is thinking okay so i need to make sure and, and they've done all their their modeling and 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 uh financial modeling and, and maths and, and determined that it's affordable etc and and model their payments back to them after the bank's received its money <clears throat> the next question that i've been asked is Hey, look, as a business owner, when I've gone to the bank for funding during the growth periods of my business, the, the bank is always asked to secure that funding a, against my personal assets like my house or, or what have you. Um, I'm exiting the business. Um, I'm, I'm reducing my involvement in the business. 
do I have any other outstanding risk? If, if the bank wants to, if the bank are going to fund the, the acquisition of the business, am I exposed through any of my personal assets and, and have additional risks um, in that way? Typically with, with us, no, in the sense that um, that kind of personal element of security, I guess, is much more prevalent in smaller businesses. And I would say, you know, we've used an example of business with one million EBITDA. I guess the average size of businesses that we work with is probably more like three or three or four million of EBITDA, but, but can be smaller for sure. Uh, and I guess the reason we target that space is because we believe that the businesses that we want to lend money to in that size point are resilient enough to stand on their own two feet um, independently of the of the owners uh, personal assets and situations of those businesses so uh, unless there's a specific reason why we should typically we don't take personal security personal guarantees charges over residential property you know that doesn't form part of it because we're making an assessment of the business its ability to service the debt and the enterprise value that sits within that business and that's the basis on which we're lending money to it so that means it's completely separate from from the vendor. So, so really, you know, going back to your first question, because we've made the same business risk assessment on an EO transaction as we would on any other, that bar has already been been met in that way. So the only real risk from a personal perspective that the vendor is running is that if for some reason the business fails uh, and there is a there is a problem, you know maybe the bank has to take some kind of action or another obviously any deferred that's still due to them clearly remains at risk and, and wouldn't get paid until the bank was was repaid but beyond that in terms of personal risk uh, there is none okay great so so it's looking pretty good for the owners <clears throat> we're now moving down the route and we're we've 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 had a chat to shawbrook as an aside, Shawbrook's not a, a high, it's not a high profile bank. Um, it's perhaps no one in the business. How, how will they find Shawbrook? How, yeah, how does the business community bump into uh, someone like yourself? So I think I think it's a, it's a mixture of routes really. And actually I, I suspect if you Googled EOT funding, you'd probably find Shawbrook would, would, would come up pretty quickly. So we do get we do get quite a lot of inquiries directly from people, um, you know, looking on the internet and, and kind of typing into Google what they like. Um, but I guess the majority of it is, th is through advisors. You know, we, we work both directly with, with businesses transitioning in this way, who, we've, who we know through the networks of myself and other individuals within the organization, but also really, you know, you, your advisors, whether that be your financial tax advisors, whether that be your accountant or corporate finance advisor, whether that be your legal advisor, um, I guess a, a, a lot of the, the introductions that we get will be via one of those advisors who's working with you, um, who know us, know what we've we've done, hopefully have worked with us before and can say, look, you know, go and speak to Shawbrook. You know, they're, they're a good bunch who know what they're talking about in this space. And you know, it'd be worthwhile talking to them. Yeah. And, and, and as you, you alluded to, you are actually one of the leaders in, in EOT funding. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's one of those areas that we I guess we, we first uh, I think we, we funded our first EOT transaction nearly three years ago now um, and have done many more since. And, you know, it, it's an area that we, we like, we understand um, and we think it's going to continue to grow. So it's a, a sort of central part of, of our loan strategy in this SME market. OK. And, and given that you are one of the leaders and you, you have, um, I, I guess, you, know, you have funded a, a number of EOT um, you know, transactions, I imagine there's a whole lot that you haven't funded and, and you know what are some of the red flags that you see and you go oh we're staying away from this one um so the owners can you know perhaps recognize those red flags in their business today 
and and address them before they come and speak to someone like yourself and and prepare their business so i think um if, if i separate the question and, and focus really on the stuff that's pretty specific to employee ownership transactions as opposed to to general stuff where the business risk just doesn't 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 stack up or, or doesn't look attractive to us for eot i think there's three there's three areas that the owners who are, who are thinking of putting debt into their businesses as part of these transactions need to really think about and prepare for in advance. Um, the first one's quality of information. So I, I guess uh, one of the features we quite often see in, in businesses, particularly at the smaller end, uh, who haven't had debt before, particularly going into employee ownership, is where the quality of the financial information uh, isn't good enough to to enable a bank to, to to get enough visibility over what's going on in that business to be able to be comfortable putting debt into it. So as a minimum, you know, fully integrated financial models with a PL balance sheet and cash flow, really good monthly MI packs that include balance sheet, PL, cash flow, that include the KPIs of the business, you know, presented in a format that's clear that allows somebody to assess you know, how that business is performing in the context of its market and where expected to be. So so financial information and the quality of it. Um, is one and I guess feeding off that is making sure that you've got a robust finance department, finance director, finance manager, someone qualified in the business to produce that information for the bank because when you're putting debt into a business, the bar of information is, is higher than for a business, of course, where you're not doing that. So so number one would be, you know, making sure you've got a good finance function, you know, a dedicated qualified finance manager or finance director and good quality management information and you know banks like Shawbrook um, can kind of help guide you as to what what that can look like and provide examples for people of the sort of the sort of level of information expected. So that's number one. Uh, num number two and number three are kind of variations on the theme, really. But but number two for me would be you know, very very clearly defined uh, board of directors and management structure in the business because typically with a vendor who is exiting or at the very least taking a step back, uh, perhaps from the day to day operations of the business, it's really important that uh, in an EO environment that the, the board of directors is really clear on you know, what their role is, what their responsibilities are, you know, how often they're going to meet, who's making the key decisions of the business and what the strategy they have set for the business is um, and, and how they're going to deliver that. So you know, a, good, a good kind of governance structure around um, the kind of leadership of the business and, and what that looks like and how that's going forward. And the third point follows on from that, which is the extra layer of governance that sits around the EO structure through the board of trustees and I guess we would always encourage people um, to have at least one independent trustee that sits on their board of trustees that can hold the management team and the, and the leadership team to account for the financial health of the business the delivery of the strategy of the business um, and that gives lenders like us uh, a, a lot more comfort that the EO is being set up with the right intentions with a good form of governance around it and, the, and, a, and an appropriate level of challenge and oversight for you know, a board of directors who may be stepping up into 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 more senior roles than they've had before, um, but now have a responsibility that be, goes beyond being an owner founder where you're running the business ultimately for the benefit of the shareholders. Transition that into running the, the business for the benefit of the beneficiaries of the trust, which are the employees. And I guess that extra layer of governance has an expectation for us as a lender that the management team are going to be able to be held to account for how they're operating that benefit, that, that business given that the beneficiaries are ultimately the employees. So, so I guess they would be the, the sort of two or three things that, that we focus on quite hard for EO. And the absence of those things, I guess, leads leads us to believe um, 
or question really the motivations of the vendor. You know, if, if the motivation for the vendor is I've tried to sell to PE and I don't really want to do that and I don't like it. I've tried to sell to trade and I can't get the valuation I want. So I'm going to sell it to the employees through a, through a relatively um, friendly employee ownership transaction, take my money out with the tax benefits, thanks very much and walk off into the sunset. If that's the only motivation at all for somebody doing it, um, you know, that, that's not a particularly appealing lending prospect. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the tax benefits aren't a part of it. Absolutely it is, and it should be, but that's got to be balanced with all the other, other things, the, the cultural aspects and the benefits that it can bring to the business for a longer term. Absolutely, and, and I think, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Oliver. Like, yeah, I, I think, you know, personally, Succession Plus, we're big fans of employee ownership, but <laughs> it has to be done in the right way. You know, an employee ownership structure, you know, succeeds when you've got an employee ownership culture. You need, people need to understand what the business is all about. They need to understand how the business runs and the decisions it makes. It, it's, it, it's, it's, um, you know, it's still a commercial business and it needs to be viable. It just so happens that the, the, the key stakeholders or beneficiaries also own the business, but they still got to run and operate the business. It's, it, yeah. We, yeah. need, we need the viable. Sure. And, and most of the businesses are, are done for the for the right reason. And, and I speak to lots of businesses who've been on the journey for, for two years prior to actually undertaking the transaction because they've been changing the culture, building yeah. the team, yeah. you know, developing their people so that they're ready to take on the roles and responsibilities that they have when the, when the transition occurs. And, you know, and they're the sorts of businesses that we love working with. Um, and, and most are like that. And, and you touched on something earlier as well, Oliver, when you were, you, you were talking about the, the role of the, the trustees and the trustees are, are there to look after the, the, the beneficiaries' interests. Um, but, they're also, but what they also represent is the largest shareholder or shareholding of the business. So they, they have a, a communication aspect in terms of keeping the board accountable as well. Correct. And you didn't say this, but I think think of what I heard, and I'll just check in with you if, if I heard this correctly, it's attractive to you if you've got someone who's experienced a, in a non-executive role on the trustees, because they can, you know, look over the fence, so to speak, and keep the um, the, the new directors and, and almost mentor the directors and, and keep them on track and, and accountable to where they need to be going uh, and, and taking that business forward. because is often linked to ongoing growth of the business and taking the business to the next stage. So having someone of that level of experience and capability is a big, um, a big helper or, or a green flag, if you like, uh, when, when you're bringing the funding um, or providing the funding. Yeah, you, you're, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Daryl. You know, it's uh, it's really important that, you, like you say, it is a um, it is still a, a commercial business, um, a different ownership structure. Yes, a different level of responsibility, but much like having a non-exec in a in a in a, in a non-employee-owned business, I guess because of that low layer of governance and that extra responsibility to the beneficiaries of trust in the in in, in the employees, you know, it's really important that. You know, an independent voice sits on that board of trustees as a measure of oversight and governance and control to make sure that, you know, they can hold the management team to account for, for delivering and protecting the business and operating it in the right way. That, that's, a, like you say, a real green flag. Um, you know, and that's very different to, you know, it's quite hard sometimes for owner founders who've operated businesses, you know, effectively for, for themselves, for their family for the last 30 years who, 
uh, are used to making all of the key decisions in the business uh, pretty much because that's the way it's been successful. Um, moving away from that mindset where you can't operate it purely for your own benefit um, and doing that, uh, you know, in a, in a in a way that has some governance to it is 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 really powerful. You know, the converse of that is, you know, we we see these every now and again where you have an owner founder who's stepping back. Uh, they're now going to sit on the board of trustees uh, along with one of the members of the management team and one of the friends of the founder vendor uh, who happens to be an accountant. Um, and and that, that's not a very robust governance structure because ultimately no one is going to challenge um, that vendor, that person who's been used to culturally making decisions on their own for 30 odd years. So, you know, that's the converse of the situation. So an, a truly independent director is, is is what you're looking for by the sounds of it, not... Uh, Ideally, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and, and I've seen many where the, you know, the business accountant, you know, just slots in who's helped with the, with the transaction and the transition, just jumps in as the... You know, the independent director, and they've got a lot of great business experience. But what you're saying, if I understand, is yeah, they understand the, the tax structure, they understand the structures, they understand the entity. But do are they the sort of person that really is going to hold people to account and hold their feet to the fire and challenge and you know, help transition the business to the next level? They're not ultimately independent in that sense, are they? Because they're still being retained and paid by the company. Um you know, as their accountant. So, you know, there's there's a natural conflict there where they recognise that if they upset people too much, they might not be the company accountant anymore. So, um, you know, that, that has a consideration to it, yeah. Okay. Hey, and look, there's so many more questions that, that, that we've got. So one of the questions that I hear a lot is, okay, we've sold our business to the EOT. We, we may have completed the EOT. Um, we're now 100% EOT or, 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 you know, or we're 100% uh, the, the founders have exited the business. We're five years in, for example. What, what happens after that? Is there an exit after EOT? Like the, the business may continue to grow and, and they, they may have a PE knock on their door. They, they may have somewhere, a, a large international trade player go, hey, look, these guys would be great as part of our portfolio. Yeah, and, and I know on paper, the trustees have the, yeah, they've got to look after the beneficiaries. What are the options there? Yeah, it's an interesting one actually, and and and, and, and not a not a, a path sort of really well well trodden so far in the sense that there hasn't been. It's still whilst the structure's been around for a while, I guess it's increased in popularity exponentially over the last kind of couple of years. Um, so so there isn't a, a a huge kind of backlog of transactions that have occurred and then operated in the employee ownership structure for a, for a long enough period of time to then become. Uh, a sort of appealing as as a sort of secondary acquisition, but you know, there's no reason why those those things can't occur. I think what you do tend to find is that um, for many, the businesses that that go down this route, um, you know, part of it is creating a legacy for the for the founders and of, of those businesses, um, and controlling and, and building what that legacy looks like. So a lot of businesses go into this structure with no real intention ever of of operating in any other way. It's a, it's a long term decision that they they take to transition to employee ownership and operate that way ad infinitum. Um, you know, others do it and, and sell less of the business and retain some some upside potential in the future. So you know, there's no reason why any other options are barred to to a, to a business or an owner just because they've transitioned into employee ownership. You know, they yeah. still are able to be purchased by by other buyers at some point in the future. Um, 
but I guess at the moment we haven't seen loads of cases where that's actually happened, uh, both because of the reasons for doing it in the first place and just the longevity of the of the structure in this market. Yeah, and as always, the the, the trust should get the right tax and uh, legal advice of you know, the opportunities. Hey, look, Oliver, this has been fantastic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could continue on, but from your perspective. What's the key message you want listeners to take away from this conversation with us today? What, what's the, the number one things that they, they need to consider before uh, looking at finance? Sure. Well, I think, the, the, thanks for having me on, Daryl, but I think the number one message really is that um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realise that you can help facilitate these structures by putting debt into in to do it. And I guess my, my number one message to people would be that if you've got a, a, a you know, a good business that, that kind of has those uh, dynamics that we talked about right at the start and you're considering you know going down the road to, route of employee ownership you know be aware you know that that putting some debt into that business through somebody like Shawbrook is an option to do that um, and if that's something that that people want to consider or think about then you know we, we'd be delighted to hear from them that's brilliant yeah look for, for me it's the awareness that the EOT is I think you said growing exponentially exponentially uh, and it is yes and, and therefore the options available and, and I guess the support industries around that are growing as well. Um, and, and funding is absolutely available um, you know, as, as a commercial viability and, and, and a really attractive proposition for the right businesses. So yeah, really absolutely. No, thank, thank you, Daryl. Appreciate, uh, appreciate being invited on and um, yeah, hopefully speak again soon. Cheers, Oliver. Thank you.